Chapter 6 The King's Bane October 1773 The sun begins creeping over the horizon, and the once large fire beyond the hearth is reduced to coals and ash as Adahi and Thomas Young finish their night-long conversation. There is one more thing, Thomas says, standing up. Your father's coin. Confusion consumes Adahi at the moment, and his voice mirrors his feeling. My father's coin? Yes, dear boy. The young family comes from a long line of smugglers, privateers, military men, and men of means. In my father's dying will, it left behind myself and John large amounts of coin. I'm giving you your father's share, he says, walking out of the room. A multitude of thoughts and feelings crash over Adahi as his uncle returns, holding a smaller-sized wooden box, easily carryable but not concealable. The smaller wooden box had two hinges on the back side connected to the top. Opposite of the hinges was a latch with a loop and lock. Thomas places the box on a table, removes his key ring with multiple keys, and grabs a distinct key, removing the lock from the chest. He opens it and displays the internals to Adahi. Silver? Gold? British pounds? What is this, a treasure chest? Adahi says, youthfully excited, never seeing this much money before. Thomas laughs. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Use this coin for currency. There is much more here than most people will ever see in these colonies. Keep it hidden. Keep it discreet. And most importantly, use it sparingly. Only when needed, he says sincerely to his nephew. Adahi was taken aback by the coin, but would keep it safe. He wanted only to use the money when he needed to. His uncle was right, and he knew the money had no place being flaunted or disregarded as expendable. I think we've covered it, Adahi, Thomas says, smiling. I disagree. I think we've only just started. I need some food, some ale, and a packed pipe, Adahi proclaims happily. I take it your cheerful attitudes mean you'll join us? Thomas asked, smiling. Under one condition, Adahi's smile fades slowly as the mood gets serious and a stoic look consumes his face. Never risk your identity for my life. I understand you are my father's brother, but the mission needs to live on. You need to continue the fight, and I do not want your work ruined because we are related. If that is what you wish, it is my duty to uphold it, Thomas says respectfully in response to Adhi's one condition. The mission, of course, was to push King George III in Great Britain out of the colonies. It was an ambitious mission, to say the least, and Adahi was determined in helping his uncle see it through. Thomas Young was a small piece of the machine that was a colonial resistance. Since the mid-1760s, Thomas Young ended his time as a major within the British military and began privateering. When the Stamp Act was enacted, Thomas joined a collective voice in ensuring resistance toward these newly imposed and enforced taxes. The growing sentiment stretched across the entirety of the colonies from farmers to prominent people in positions of power. The crown crossed too many lines too many times. The king tried to govern a nation without being physically present in the Americas. Adahi saw firsthand as a child when his tribe would venture to the nearest town for commerce and trade, but since his mother's death and his departure he has noticed it has gotten worse for the colonies. Over the years, the occupying British loyalists were creating new laws shutting down more vendors and taxing the citizens. The taxes imposed were on everything from corn to tobacco to land. 
Adahi witnessed his tribe feel the effects of the crown as he and his mother were denied commerce and trade more frequently as the years passed. After his mother's death, Adahi heard of the whispers on the road to Boston. The crown has been squeezing the colonies for work and supplies for too long, and the people gather in the shadows to discuss revolution and revolt. This attitude is prominent among most of the citizens and people Adahi ran into on his journey thus far. The mission and the talisman are most important. Revealing your truths and identity will only do you harm, not good. Adahi stands up from the chair and stretches from the long hours discussion. Get some sleep in the upstairs guest quarters. I'm sure it has been a long journey for you. Take the coin chest and use it when you need it, Thomas says as he lifts his left arm, indicating the way toward the room. That it has been, and I will. Thank you, Adahi replies, then heads upstairs to the guest quarters with the wooden box in hand. The sun is nearly fully risen on the horizon by the time Adahi lays his head on the pillow. He reflects on his night-long conversation with his newly found uncle and all the information he has learned in a short amount of time. Thomas Young was a violent man, but with age has become understanding in his mind. During their conversation, Thomas elaborated deeply on the current status of the colonies and how he feared he would soon be in open conflict with the full might of the British Empire. Thomas explained to Adahi in their hours-long conversation why he became a leader within Boston. After his actions in the war and as a privateer became popular, he was a figurehead. Conversations throughout taverns, coffeehouses, and shops around the city became lore and legend over the years, spreading to surrounding areas and soon nearly across the entirety of the colonies. Adahi listened all night about how Thomas was truly upset about the actions of the king in using the colonies to gain off their work and land. He refused to see it as a king's land. What made it more clear to him to become involved politically was that he wanted to have a real hand in how the colony would operate. Adahi never once wanted to be involved with politics or what came with trying to break the system. He only wanted to know about his father and why his mother never spoke of him. He just wants to live a wilderness life. His Uncle Thomas was a great inspiration for him as he tried to absorb as much as he could during their long discussion. Adahi knew once he set off toward Boston, his life would never be the same. And now, after this discussion, he knows the course is being plotted. During their discussion, Adahi learned that Thomas formed a secret rogue entity known as the King's Bane when he was a privateer to disrupt crown shipments that were exclusive to King George II. He explained that he was subtle in their attacks, and over the years, the group has transformed into a multi-purpose cabal. At times, they were spy rings for gathering intelligence for the resistance within the colonies, and at times, they were attacking coin caravans to bolster their own pockets. In the last few years, the King's Bane has been under local scrutiny by British forces, resulting in a dramatic decrease in operations. Their blatant defiance has become a center of British high command in the colonies. Adahi thrived in violent environments and knew this would be an adventure. He drifted into unaccompanied sleep as his thoughts looked to the future and what it could hold. It's been almost 24 hours since he's gone to bed, Thomas. How much longer can he rest? Mary asked, concerned for the young man. However long he needs. He's been on a long journey. He needs someone too, Mary. His father, my brother, was killed, and when his mother died, he has no one. The King's Bane can give him purpose, can give him an outlet for his violence, and somewhere to focus his hate for the King. That boy has a fire inside him, like my brother, 
that cannot be doused or subdued. Just promise me you won't get him killed. He's just a boy with so much life ahead of him, my love. I will do my best, Thomas replies, knowing Adahi lusts for adventure and danger like his father. Thomas, you should have told him about his father, Mary says quietly. Aye, my dear, when the time is right, he will know, Thomas replies. The guest quarter's door opens with a fully dressed and geared up Adahi emerging. The greatcoat sat snugly over top the leather handwoven chest rig. His pistol was holstered on his chest, canted with the barrel downward, able to be withdrawn with his right hand. The war council dagger was sheathed and fastened to the chest rig on his left side under his arm, with his long-sleeved white shirt sat underneath it all. He exchanged his two flying talon blades for the dagger and pistol as he frequently changed out his kit. How did you rest? Thomas asked. Like I've been asleep for a moon cycle. It's nice to be rested, truly. I appreciate your hospitality. Adahi, you are family, and we are happy you are here. Now if you'll excuse me, I have a meeting with a friend, Mary says, then exits the room. Let's go meet the King's Bane, shall we? Back alley hideaways and dingy streets are the battlefields for the King's Bane these days, as Thomas had explained in her night-long discussion. The air was stale within a dense brick corridor. Each turn led down another cobblestone alley that lengthened the journey deeper into the heart of Boston. The further they walked, the void of candlelight seemed to grow, and the less the city seemed alive. At last, Thomas slows his pace, coming to a halt in front of what looks like an old tavern no longer in service. We are here, Thomas says, rounding a knee-high brick wall following Sarah's leading down to an underground corridor. Adahi follows. It's going to be dark for the next few steps. Oi! Is that you, Thomas? A young voice shouts in the darkness from across the basement room. Ah! Nimish! Why are you in the entrance corridor? Thomas asks. Well, uh, you see, uh, we sort of, uh, well, we ambushed a caravan just outside Watertown, east of Boston, and uh, apparently someone survived. Stop. Where is James? The concern in Thomas's voice is apparent as he walked across the dark room swiftly. In the inside? Nimish says, moving out of the way to the open door behind him. The door opens, illuminating a small dark room therein, revealing a long corridor lit by evenly placed candles lying the hall. In the light, Adahi can see the man his uncle called Nimish. He was of Indian descent from the kingdom of Nepal. His uniform was that from a presumed dead redcoat, with a touch of personalization, as if he had had it for years. He had black hair and dark brown eyes and spoke perfect English. Thomas walks in with haste as Adahi follows him down the corridor. The hall eventually opens to a large great room with a lit fire burning in the fireplace. James, are you alright? Thomas asks as he and Adahi enter the great room. James Robinson, a large African man who had a rough past, his body was the canvas that told that story. He wore a shirt with cut off sleeves, which slightly showcased his back. Standing up from the chair in front of the fire holding his flintlock, his arms and shoulders were ravaged and scarred from past years. What Adahi could see of his back showed a lifelong struggle he has had to endure. Adahi saw that clearly. Yeah, we are all fine. It was a successful operation. The issue is that apparently a lobster survived the attack. Almost unbelievable, but so says the sources from Watertown and Brookline, James Robinson says in a deep, calm undertone cleaning the barrel of his flintlock pistol. Good. Much better than I anticipated when I first arrived, 
I was worried when Nimish was at the entrance in the corridor. I assumed the worst, Thomas replies to James with a relief in his voice. Who, who, who is this? An Englishman's voice asked crudely from the shadowy corner of the room. An older man, midway through his life, Adahi quickly assessed, was as tall as Adahi with pale white skin and looked of disdain on his face. The gray-haired man walks in the light, casually pointing at Adahi. Shakespeare, good to see you. This is Adahi. I found him in a barn. Almost how I once found you. I'm sure you'll work well together, Thomas says with sarcasm on his tongue to the seemingly disgruntled man. Shakespeare walks up to Adahi, judging him. Aye, what are you supposed to be? Some sort of Indian white man mixed mutt? You don't even look native. I'm sure they just love you. Shakespeare scoffs as he gets closer to Adahi, putting his finger on his chest. Just because Thomas brings you... Adahi grabs a man's carpets with his right hand, flipping his wrist, spinning Shakespeare around, tightening his grip, simultaneously kicking out the man's knees, dropping him to the ground. Adahi withdraws his smaller fighting fox blade from his left hand, putting the tip slightly to the man's neck. That'll be the last time that you touch me. Do it again, and I'll cut your fucking hand off. Adahi says aggressively and closely to Shakespeare before letting him go. Thomas shakes his head. You see, Shakespeare, that is my nephew. His blood is my blood, and the rage runs rampant. He laughs and continues. Next time, you'll be a bit more cordial to our guests instead of just spewing out ignorant comments. I thought you, as a member of the King's Bane, would have known a little bit better than that, Thomas says, sitting down in one of the chairs near the fire, shaking his head of disappointment in the man. Your nephew, you say, James Robinson inquires. Yes. Your brother died. How did he have a son? Are you sure he is not a spy sent from the tyrant Georgie overseas? James Robinson says back. He is my blood nephew. That I can vouch my life on. There is no further discussion of this, Thomas says sharply, almost insulted that his men would question his words and imply Adi he could be a spy. This goes to show the paranoia our tight-knit group is experiencing. This is precisely why we can't stop these attacks and need to keep pushing the mission, Thomas proclaims. Well, I've never encountered any British trooper or hired mercenary that could move that way and could subdue me so quickly. And spies don't use such harsh language, Shakespeare says laughing as he stands up rubbing his wrist. Welcome to the King's Bane, Adahi. Just then, Nimish and the older woman with white hair entered the room from the long corridor of the great room. Ah, Nix, the goddess of night. How appropriate for you to arrive at such late hours, James says to the woman affectionately. She smiles at the large man's words from across the room. The white-haired middle-aged woman had a large scar on her neck that stemmed ear to ear. Adahi removed his focus from it quickly. Ah, Mr. Robinson. It is appropriate, isn't it? Thomas, I assume you're here because you found out about the survivor from Watertown? Nix asked Thomas plainly. No, but now that it's been clearly established there is indeed a survivor, we need to remedy this situation. Now we have roughly three to seven days before a British contingency force arrives to secure the survivor and transport him to London. Once he's on that ship, you can forget about finding him ever again. If we try to get him before, while he's with the contingency force, we will bring the wrath of Georgie. We need to deal with this Lucin now before he labels you four, if he hasn't already. Thomas says, I'll go. 
Addy says directly to the others, almost interrupting. No, Thomas says sharply. I'll be a ghost. You've explained that the survivor knows their faces. I can get myself in, and I can make it quick and silent. Trust me, Addy says, wanting to help. I cannot allow you to do this. You've only just arrived, and if you are killed or captured, I will blame no one but myself, Thomas explains. I understand your wishes fully, but it seems there is no alternative, and I am capable of completing this task. I will be nothing more than a shadow, he proclaims to his uncle. James Robinson, Shakespeare, Nix, and Nimish say nothing, knowing that their faces were all seen by the caravan. Their silence is a clear indicator as they hear the passion and authenticity in the young man's voice and have no choice but to trust him. Well, that settles it, Thomas chuckles. Add a he, Nimish says out loud. Sorry, I was just making sure we pronounce your name properly. I know from personal experience that it can be frustrating when the ones closest to you mispronounce your name. Huzzah, Nimish! Thomas purposely mispronounces his name, half laughs, and continues speaking sharply, turning to Adahi, completing a full smile. Now let's shape the plan for Watertown. The next few hours, the cab will discuss their plan for the survivor in Watertown. Adahi was to ride in the night, survey the town, remove the guards, and get inside the house and kill the man quietly. Thomas also led the discussion, familiarizing Adahi with the other members of the King's Bane throughout the night. James Robinson was taken from Africa as a young man sold into slave labor as part of the Atlantic slave trade. He was sold to a plantation owner by the name of William Redford, and for the first few years being in the colonies, he was beaten daily, whipped for fun, and was a plantation workhorse because of his size. Later in his life, after he was a free man, he would run into Thomas Young. The King's Bane was in his adolescent years when James Robinson joined. They were still running naval disruptions just outside Boston Harbor, and Thomas was still a privateer. James Robinson was a major asset for Thomas Young and his shadowy operation. Nimish was born in Nepal and was the youngest member of the group, but was also the third longest serving member of the King's Bane after Thomas and James. Nimish was about five foot eleven and built tough. At the age of seven, Nimish landed in Boston Harbor and within days became a street sleeper. Thomas found him as a boy, took him in, and provided a home for Nimish to thrive. Shakespeare, or Elias Owen, as was his birth name, was the oldest of the King's Bane outside of Thomas and the newest member outside of Adahi. He was born in London in 1712 to a wealthy theater owner. He claims to be a direct descendant of William Shakespeare, but has no lineage proof to stake his claims. His fiery temper rivals that of Adahi, and his life mirrors that of death and chaos. Within several years of thriving in the colonies, Shakespeare found himself in a French and Indian wars, conducting proper savagery. Thomas found Shakespeare as a drunkard telling war stories to anyone who would listen. Thomas listened, and after a few meetings with Shakespeare, Thomas began running him to gather intelligence at local brothels, and over time, he became a vital component of Thomas's operation. Nix, or Esther Webb, was a violent woman who knew exactly how to utilize her violence at the proper times. Esther was born just outside of Boston in 1726 and had a very brutal upbringing that she was always so reluctant to share. As the years passed, she would name herself Nix, the goddess of night, and would run into Thomas Young in 1764, joining the King's Bane shortly after 
allowing her an outlet for her deathly passions. Adahi had spent the entire night trading stories with these shadow soldiers known to him as the King's Bane. They all soon formed a close bond and would become great friends in the coming months. He was overwhelmed by their compassion and energy, knowing this is exactly where he was supposed to be. Adahi finally felt a sense of belonging he has been searching for since leaving his tribe, and even then, he never felt like he truly belonged being half English. Within the King's Bane, he was a welcomed addition to the uncommon gorillas.